Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market, a dynamic leader in the quality food business, a mission-driven company that aims to set the standards of excellence for food retailers. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Chef Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today this is the very first interview we're doing from Expo Milano 2015. And I am thrilled because appropriately our very first chef that we're interviewing is Mark Ladner of Del Posto in New York. Um, for those of you who might not know Mark, which I think are probably three people now in America, um, he is the executive chef at Del Posto and has been since the opening in 2005. Uh, they are the first time in, I think, in about 20 years, 40 years, the New York Times finally gave four stars to an Italian restaurant, and Mark was the chef at the Helm. Of course, the restaurant's owned, a lot of people know, by um, uh, the Bastianiches, Joe and, and uh, Lydia, and Mar- Mario Batali. But actually, Mark is the chef there and always has been. It received a Michelin star. It's a grand restaurant in the Relayan Chateau. It has a grand award from the Wine Spectator, Five Diamonds, going on and on and on, you know, from AAA. And Mark himself um, started uh, Babo as a sous chef, and then he opened all the other restaurants, it seems, for the Bastianiches. Yeah, Lupa, Otto in Ateca, and then finally you became a partner in Del Posto. So uh, we're going to get into a lot of other things that you're doing, uh, and uh, so welcome. And we are sitting in the Seven Star Galleria restaurant, James Beard restaurant, in downtown Milan at the Galleria, right across from the Duomo, and Mark is here with his team opening the JBF American Restaurant in Milan. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you very much, Dorothy. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for taking the time to, uh, to sit down with me for a little bit. Okay, so um, I'm just going to get the microphone closer. There may be background noise because we are in the restaurant, and I apologize in advance. But, you know, last night I introduced you saying you're from Rhode Island, but you're really from Belmont, Massachusetts. I'm from Belmont, yes. I spent most of my formative years in, uh, in Cambridge and Harvard Square. That's where I started cooking. So, Why there? Um, <clears throat> well, uh, I... I I lived and went to high school in Belmont, which is only, it's actually, it borders uh, Cambridge. Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And Harvard Square was sort of uh, obviously the uh, meeting point um, for a lot of the, uh, you know, academics that happened in and around Boston. Um, as young punks, we would hang out in Harvard Square, either skateboarding or, um, you know, doing illicit activities and um, entertaining ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> trying not to get, you know, chased by police. And, uh, you know, I gradually uh, eventually found myself in restaurants, and uh, I just, uh, it was easy for me to get there, and uh, I didn't need a chaperone, and um, 
yeah, that's where we would, you know. Okay, so before we jump to your culinary career, so you were uh, you were a skateboard aficionado, yeah, staying out of the, trying to stay away from the police, yes. right? So, what kind of food were you eating in those days? Oh, you know, the American staples: uh, hamburgers, uh, pizza, uh, club sandwiches, greasy spoon, American stuff, primarily. Yeah. And what kind of food did you have at home? Uh, well, I was a what would be considered at that point in time a latchkey kid. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mother worked full time. My parents were uh, divorced, mm-hmm. so my younger sister and I, you know, really took care of ourselves. Um, it didn't seem strange at the time. Um, at this point, uh, ch- you know, child services would probably get involved if parents <laughs> did what you know mine did to me. But um, I didn't feel you know disadvantaged or uh, you know. Uh, neglected in any way. It just sort of was the way it was. So did you have an interest in cooking at that age? Uh, I did always have an interest in food. I don't come from a family that has, uh, you know, much traditional food background. Uh, my mother's family is, uh, is French-Canadian from Alberta. Alberta. Oh. So there was some of that, you know, uh, especially, you know, around holidays and things. Um, my mother also, when I was younger, uh, spent time managing salad bars, which, as you know, were quite popular in the 70s and ironically becoming quite popular again. So, uh, so yeah, one of my first sort of really fond memories of food is uh, being introduced to and immediately falling in, in love with the canned chickpea. That was my portal to um, obsession. How, how, did you, how did somebody in you know in Belmont, Massachusetts, you even pick that up in a grocery? No, it was oh, at the salad, salad bar. bar. It's a salad bar. That's yeah. true. Yeah. And you like so the texture. grazing the texture. I really enjoyed the flavor. I mean, it's a it's a it's a modern miracle how they're able to make everyone perfectly cooked in those cans. Um, I even like that sort of sodium benzoate syrup a little bit. Well, you know, um, just a little sidebar, because she's Italian, Marcella Hezan was, I used to send her Swiss chard from my garden, mm-hmm. and she, I called her, she called me one day to thank me, mm-hmm. and she said, I'm making my favorite dish, which was sautéing the um, Swiss chard chickpeas. with chickpeas, and she Absolutely. said, only use Goya. Yeah. She said they wow. were, yeah, she was an aficionado wow. of those canned chickpeas. Wow. She says, Dorothy, you don't have to, you know, <laughs> make the chickpea from scratch. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, two chickpeas now. I mean, yep. this is chickpeas, chickpeas are making it. it. Yeah. That's where it's at. Yeah. yeah. So, do you use them a lot in your cooking now? Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, my uh, my cooks uh, try to keep me honest, and we we cook. Uh, we actually get our our chickpeas from Cesare, so it's like the the romantic notion of one side of one hill, and you know. Yeah, well, that's Cesare Casella. Yeah, <laughs> from uh, uh, the Bean Bean Republic, is it called? Yeah, Republic of Beans. Republic of Beans. You can get them on the internet yeah. or at Salomeria Rossi in New uh, York. Alma Gourmet carries them as well, distributes oh, really? them. Yeah. Okay. Um, so we use a lot of those. Uh, that's one thing that I definitely learned from Cesare is that, um, similar to a lot of things, even uh, particularly with dried. Uh, legumes using from the most recent vintage um, is really the best. They sort of reconstitute pretty pretty evenly. Mm. Yeah. Well, that lesson in chickpeas. Any so then, how did you decide to go to culinary school? Um, 
pretty much from the moment I started working in, in, in restaurants, I knew that this was what I wanted to be. So. What was it that well, you know, it's it's obviously very different than, um, you know, 25 years ago or 30 years ago than it is now. It was much more the fringe of society, sort of the, um, the romance of, um, you know, the pirate ship that, uh, that Anthony Bourdain speaks of a lot. <clears throat> um, degenerates, ex-cons, drug addicts. That sort of thing, uh, really the camaraderie of uh, of kitchens um, that sort of uh, maybe even um, surrogate family sort of uh, mentality. Um, I also really enjoyed the idea of not sort of uh, uh, submitting to the nine to five you know desk culture from very early on. also the idea of being you know active and utilizing you know multiple senses simultaneously um like a lot of us um chefs being sort of you know add and that sort of thing um and then proximity to alcohol and other things like that of course (laughs) i love honest answers so um so you went to cooking school and and what was your mindset when you went into cooking school? Was it to become the James Beard award-winning best chef of New York, which you just won? I thought that I would... uh, I thought that I was good enough to be able to eventually be able to make the kind of food that that I thought that I would one day want to. I didn't know what that would be, but, um, you know, I really truly believe that... that as long as you can make food taste the way that you like... um, I don't really think that you need to spend a tremendous amount of time continuing to polish your your culinary skills. I mean, um, I think that you can, like, waste a lot of time, uh, you know, spelunking down the rabbit hole for uh, culinary greatness when, in this day and age, um, you know, uh, from an entrepreneurial and uh, and business perspective, there's such a broad range of skill sets necessary to be successful in this industry that that spending too much time trying to like perfect a bite of food might not be the best utilization of your time. That's a great observation. So you got out of culinary school. You went to Johnson and Wales, and they're going to be honoring you with a PhD, an honorary PhD. I mean, my, my gosh! You ever... know what to where to compartmentalize that. Um, well, now when you make a reservation, you can call yourself Doctor Ladner. <laughs> that, that will never happen. For, for the record, on the record, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so, how did you get attracted to Italian food? Um, yeah, so I have a theory on this. I think that when you're a young person and your filters are sort of open, you tend to be, you know, more heavily influenced by um, your, you know, your first experiences. And the first restaurants that I worked in were primarily sort of mom and pop, um, pizza, you know, sub sandwich kind of places, and. Uh, it just sort of, you know, resonated with me. Um, I actually left Johnson & Wales. Um, I didn't actually graduate. 
Oh. <laughs> no, I have, a, I have a culinary school, but I didn't finish the, uh, the, the, the business management school. Yeah. Uh, because I got a job working for Todd English. Oh. At the original Olives. Did you ever go to that no, restaurant? No, I didn't. It was I... so extraordinary. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was a, obviously a more formidable and formative uh, education into Italian food and wine and culture. But at the time, this would have been like 91, maybe. Um, Todd English had a small restaurant in Charlestown, Massachusetts that was only 30 seats. It was open five nights a week with a wood grill, a wood oven, and a wood rotisserie. And like... A wood rotisserie. A wood oven, wood grill, wood rotisserie. 30, only 30 seats. Todd cooked on the line every night. Barbara Lynch was standing right next to him. It was like this incredible... There were only like seven or eight employees. It was a really, really incredible uh, opportunity for me. And so I left school to, to pursue To go that. to graduate school. Yeah, yeah, to pursue that. So I stayed in Boston for a couple of years before I... Uh, and olives. Yes, um, until I got the the confidence to try to make it in Manhattan. What what brought you to Manhattan? Um, I knew I had come here when my father ran the marathon in 1978, and he brought us with him. And I knew immediately. I've always been an, an urbanite, and uh, knew that I wanted to live in cities. Um, so then in college, I came back to visit friends and, and knew it was where I wanted to be. I just didn't feel I was ready yet. In the, in the early 90s, it was still, I mean, as you know, it was still pretty edgy. And it was, it was harder to sort of make your way, I think, in Manhattan, especially on an entry-level cook's salary. Um, and, and also the European chefs were still yes. pretty ascendant. Oh, my God, it was completely you francophile, yes. completely. Maybe Jonathan Waxman might have been one of the few Americans. Yeah, yeah Jams, um, for sure. There wasn't... Uh, Peter Hoffman, yeah, Peter Hoffman was doing really interesting American food. Um, it was before Gramercy Tavern. Um, it was super, yeah, it was super uh, francophile still, all of the la and the la. Um, and yeah, coming from olives, I had been sort of like more like rustic farm-to-table food even back back then, and there was no was such it, thing as the up had he spent in Manhattan. Yeah, had he spent a lot of time in Italy? Was it his? He worked. The two, his two primary influences were he worked at Le Cote Basque for Rachu, uh-huh. and he worked at Dal Pescatore for Nadia Santini. I see. And I think it's in Lombardia. So he was doing authentic Italian food. At that time he was, yeah. His food then sort of evolved into more <clears throat> like American sort of tall food, and then, it, and then it kind of went from there. But at that time it was very, very rude. So was that, your fir- that was your first introduction to the taste like of the authentic? really professional kitchen, yeah. So we're just going to take a quick break, and when we come back we're going to delve into New York years. Today's program has been brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Are you a locavore? Our Northeast Regional Forager for Whole Foods Market sure is. 
She spends her time traveling around the New York City metro area sourcing the best new or interesting artisanal and handcrafted local products for our purchasing teams at the local store level. Part of our commitment to our local suppliers includes assisting them with the process of getting their products sold at our stores. Whether it's suggesting packaging designs, pricing, or distribution methods, she's helping some of the area's best new products reach savvy shoppers at Whole Foods Market stores. Today, New York. Tomorrow, the world. For more information, visit WholeFoodsMarket.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Chef's Story. And today, my guest in Milano, because we're at the expo, uh, is the most recent 2015 James Beard Foundation New York Outstanding Best Chef, Mark Ladner. And um, we're so happy to have you. Thank you very much, Dorothy. Uh, and, and to have you cooking at the James Beard Restaurant in Milan. So um, you get to New York. Were you, were you, you totally focused on Italian restaurants? Um, no, I, I actually worked in some uh, American restaurants. At the time, you could still work for cash. So I was sort of gigging around, so to speak, uh, trying to get a sense of uh, sort of the landscape. Um, as, as most people probably know, you know, trying to f- navigate the, um, you know, New York in general, it can be overwhelming in almost any industry. So it takes wa- a while. You really have to do your homework. And, um, you know, I dined out for a lot of inexpensive lunches to try to see what people's sort of styles were and things like that. Um, I was then fortunate enough to get... Um, into the kitchen of a guy by the name of Scott Bryan, who's sort of like a chef's uh, chef. You don't really hear much about him these days, but um, let me assure you, he's one of the greatest chefs of all time, uh, greatest cooks. In fact, uh, Anthony Bourdain wrote an entire chapter on Scott in uh, Kitchen Confidential. You should go back and check it out. He's a he's a he's an amazing guy. Yeah, um, I worked with him first at uh, Allison on Dominic Street, uh-huh. which I'm sure you remember. And then we uh, we were at a restaurant called Luma, which was on 9th Avenue. And then we opened a place called uh, Indigo, which was like a really inexpensive restaurant. Um, that was sort of the beginning of that time in Manhattan when Mario was really doing uh, amazing inexpensive food at Poe. And then uh, Jean-Claude Aichiavelli was doing all that stuff in Soho with, like, Soho Steak and uh, Jean-Claude in those restaurants. Um, so that was when sort of that 25 and under category was, was, was really great. And again, this is when um, cash was still king. So it, things were just were different, yeah. Um, so I spent three, almost four years with him. So how wild was it back then? I mean, uh, it wasn't get- actually wild at all, except that there were less rules because it was harder to keep track of rules. You know, it was like pre-internet. Um, you know, the IRS wasn't able to uh, follow things as closely because um, there wasn't record. Right. Um, was it a lot easier for a chef to start their own restaurant back then? An American chef. I would say that it was, except that people didn't seem to be necessarily as entrepreneurial, uh, willing to take sort of the risk. It didn't seem as attainable uh, 
uh, a goal maybe as it seems today because there's so there's so much information and you hear so much about people encouraging people to be entrepreneurial and that I don't remember that being so much the case then. Well, let's return to that in in a bit. Um, so, so when did you meet the the Mario Batali Bastianich? That would be that would be about the time. So, you know, I was good friends, and uh, I would eat at. I lived I lived in the village all during this time, and I would spend. Uh, you know, I would eat at Poe because it was really inexpensive. It was really delicious, and I could I could afford it. Mario was there cooking every night. I became friends with his manager, uh, Jason Denton, who later became my business partner. And uh, and I was really um, inspired by that style of restaurant. And I thought that that's the kind of restaurateur I wanted to be. Uh, lo and behold, by the time it, I felt I was ready. Um, that model was already had already sailed and it was gone. What made you know you were ready? Um, well, <laughs> I uh, I was about to have a kid, so that helped um, sort of put things in perspective. Um, and I also felt like I was at that point where I could make food taste. Um, the way that I wanted it to taste. And I think that that's an interesting and an important sort of benchmark. Because as, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, you can definitely spelunk down the rabbit hole and, and, and chase um, the craft around the world, you know, for an entire career. But, um, you know, I just don't know how necessary that necessarily is. Also, once you have your own kitchen, it doesn't necessarily mean that you, that you stop learning, mm-hmm. you know. So, so you felt that you're ready to yes. to stop looking at everybody else's. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And and so, how did so how did you wind up at Bobble? It was because um, was that was, this time that it was a little bit before that. I was um, I was cooking at Jean George um, with some friends of mine, including your one of your esteemed alumni, is Wiley. So Wiley actually. Got me the job at Jean George. I had been I've been friends with Wiley for many years. Um, so, uh, as much as I enjoyed that experience, and I very much wanted to see what a four star kitchen was like, and wanted to be able to say, you know, I had worked in a four star kitchen, and and I do think that you need the exposure just so that you can understand the kind of um, expectations that uh, people have, particularly people like like Jean-Georges or Danielle, you know, um, that have only ever lived in that culture. Um, but I missed Italian food, and I was already friendly with Mario, and when I knew that he was um, opening Babo, I, I went and found him and asked him if I could, if I could work with him. What did he say? <laughs> so I remember, I, I remember clearly. Um, so he took me into the backyard of, um, of Babo, I'm, I'm sorry, of uh, Poe, and we sat down on these two little plastic lawn chairs, and he asked me for my resume, and I didn't know really what a resume was. <laughs> I had, I'd never used one before because it was still... Um, it's a lot of word of mouth. It was word of mouth, and it was, yeah, exactly. He, he knew my past. Um, because he was friendly with my my former bosses, um, and then uh, 
he took me directly to Barnes and Noble on Sixth Avenue and Eighth Street and bought me um, uh, Lynn Rosetta Casper's uh, The Splendid Table, uh, Marcella Hazan, uh, The River Cafe, and uh, uh, in a um, what is it, uh, Voltero? Uh, Marchese. No, yeah. no, not no, Marchese. Uh, Bugiali. Oh, Bugiali. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yes. Yeah. So yeah. I spent the next uh, couple months devouring those. And, yeah. So how did the f- initial menu come about? Everything. I didn't know any of this stuff. Um, it was a really pivotal uh, opening, I think, in the landscape of Manhattan uh, dining, uh, certainly for that time, but also in reference to um, Italian food in New York and how it was perceived and how it was presented and it really was a crossover because um, Mario was so heavily influenced by California cuisine and uh, and he was doing like really you know wacky stuff he was we were using a lot of offal that people had never seen and certainly had never championed um, you know, the beef cheeks and lots of um, tongue and sweetbreads and things like that. Um, but the amazing thing was that he was able to convince people that not only they should eat it, but that they should like it. And he was very convincing. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if yeah. you've never, if you've ever met Mario Batali. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's also delicious. I mean, you know, I think that's half the reason people, no yeah, no they taste things and it's not delicious and then they write it off. No question. No so, question. So were you in a, in a huge learning situation? You were still I was. Chef yes, so, I was. And, yes. And Mario was the chef? Mario was the chef. Andy, Andy uh, Nusser was the chef who had been already with Mario for five years at Poe and who went on to become the chef of Casamono and Barhamon and now a lot of the uh, Terry Lodge restaurants that they're propagating through the state of Connecticut. Uh-huh. So, um, Lupa was the first... One year that later you, we opened Lupa. And you became the chef, there. the chef there. You were the magical chef there. I remember people telling me, you know what, somebody called you Puck, you know, from... Oh, that was my, my good friend Sam Sifton. Yes. No, he's not, he's not my good friend. Well, yeah, no, because it it was very, I don't know, it just captured uh, a robustness, an authenticity, um, a a whole feel. It was so tiny. I was really obsessed with with authenticity at that time. Uh, I feel like I had sort of a, I had a... um, an insecurity complex because I, I had never worked in Italy. I didn't speak Italian. At that point, I hadn't even been to Italy yet. And um, so I was just like hell-bent on uh, trying to produce, you know, um, these austere, incredibly uh, traditional recipes the best, the best I could. <laughs> they were, they were yeah. so delicious. Yeah, so I, I, now I, you're in... Ch- because you can't do it as simple. It was a much. Uh, uh, it was, why? It was why very. Can- I mean, it's common now, but um, you know, rustic uh, Italian food at that time was was not common. There weren't weren't a lot of restaurants that that did that. Now you can find one on probably every corner of Manhattan. 
Um, you can't find Lupus on every corner. No, I know it's still a great restaurant. I haven't been involved in in, in several years, but yeah, I, I've. So that was the first kitchen you were yes. entirely in, yes. in charge of. So, what were some of the things that you brought to your kitchen that you think really define you as a chef? Uh, um, I think that there there are two things that I'm I'm really. Um, I'm really adamant about. One is a, a monkish devotion to pasta, um, but specifically the cooking and saucing of, which I think is often overlooked, rather than the making or stuffing or all of that stuff. I, I think that the execution in the last um, several minutes is something that people don't spend enough time obsessing over which I think is what really makes the difference for me. Um, and also learning, obviously, how to manage people. Um, you know, I was young at the time, so I was managing, you know, essentially peers. I don't know if I was necessarily, you know, mature enough to be a great role model. Um, and uh, But I did know that it was important to remove as much variable for error from the equation before service, so that while you were doing service, you could just focus on service. Are you a highly organized person? Not really. No? I'm not. I mean, I can be, yes. and I've been trained to be, but it yes. doesn't. it's not like innately it's in not me. Innate. No, I learned it. So I, I have to ask at this time, is this when you chose your, your hat? Um, and why? You're one, you're, the, the, I, you, I always liked hats, and then my hair fell out, and now... I wear hats to cover my cold head. No, but I mean, you don't wear a chef's toque. That's what I'm talking oh, no. about. I, I, I had to and wear a toque. I used to wear baseball hats and things like that. Um, and then uh, as Jean George, I had to wear a toque. But it was a disaster because I was much too tall and the hoods were much too short. <laughs> and I would just walk in with a Bastion hat half the day, <laughs> which was just another reason for them to yell at me. So... <laughs> Um, I, I swore those off um, in like '97. But you, but you have a signature hat. And this is because the reason that I wear these hats is because we wanted something that was white. Like as you can see, I I, I really appreciate representing the traditional garb. Mm -hmm. um, and the hat uh, was mainly because you know, in an effort to try to combat the local uh, Department of Health. Um, they insist that you wear a hat. We at Del Posto, at times, can be up to 200 employees. So a dinner service is 25 cooks, just cooks. So then with prep cooks and porters and dishwashers, it, it, it can obviously climb from there. So I felt that if I was going to walk around telling people to wear hats, that I should be wearing a hat too. So it just makes it easier because if I'm wearing a hat, I'm like, if I got to wear this fucking thing, sure as shit, you're going to wear this fucking thing, right? <laughs> it just makes it so much but easier. But I'm, I'm talking about the style of the hat because I've never seen another chef wear that, that style. Was it, is there any fry. It's just a fry. Yeah, it looks like a fry. Yeah, it looks, it's a very, you know, humble hat. They're disposable. They're, I don't know. I like them white. They come in different colors. 
Okay, so we got the hat. My, th- that was one of my it's big really questions. It's really the health department. Okay, so you wouldn't, if it wasn't for the health department. Yeah, and, and trying to lead by example. You yeah. Know. Okay, we're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. You're listening to Chef Story, and it's Dorothy Can Hamilton today with Mark Ladner in uh, the Seven Star Galleria Hotel, which houses the James Beard Foundation American Restaurant in Milan, celebrating the expo. And this is the very first interview we're doing for Heritage Radio uh, from Milan and the expo. And I'm thrilled because Mark Ladner uh, just flew in from Chicago, where he won uh, New York's Best Chef from the James Beard Foundation and had to be plunged into a cocktail party for 200 and dinner for 90, two nights in a row. And how are you feeling? It's going really well. I love Milan. Yeah. 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 So when was your first trip to Italy and what was that like after cooking all this food? Uh, Your expectations must have been Thank Um, Yeah, it was... um, We had probably been open... Lupa had been open for about um, three or four months, and Jason and I took like a very um, well curated trip through Rome. Uh, Lupa um, as a, uh, was always intended to be a Roman Osteria, so we were trying to uh, you know better familiarize ourselves with very very traditional. Um, uh, Roman uh, food. Uh, in fact, today, I don't know, is it okay if I launch into something different? Sure. So today, one of my favorite pavilions mm-hmm. at the Expo was the Italy Pavilion. And as you had recommended, mm-hmm. there is a representative from each of the 20 regions. Mm-hmm. And it's not just, uh, it's sort of a pop-up, but it's also like a very well-respected uh, regional chef. And lo and behold, I get to Lazio, and Anadente from Osteria San Cesario is there with her son, Emilio. And uh, she is like, uh, her place is, what, how should I describe it? It's in uh, Amatrice, where uh, uh, is from. And she has like the tray gambaro, so the three shrimp and the gambaroso guide, which is uh, like the best, like traditional style osteria of each of the regions. So she is like the star of Lazio. Um, so we had some cacio e pepe. We had some. Uh, oh my gosh, is she there tomorrow? Yes, oh, I'm yes, going. I'm yes, going. Yes, for you have lunch. to go. Oh, yeah. oh, oh no, I'm here for the gospel brunch. I'm going for dinner. Yeah, you should go. Highly recommended. Wow. She's a trip. Yeah. You was can't it, miss her. She's was it, red glasses like this uh, Did you know her? Yes. Yes, oh. yes. Was yes. she surprised to see yes. you? Yes, she was. Yeah. Oh, my God. I have a picture. i got to show you this picture. picture. Okay. So, so, I'm so lucky to see this. This is really, really funny. I can't wait to post this on social media. So, let, let's get this over with. How, how did you like Expo? So, here's the picture. Look, look how excited she is to see me. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> 
Well, you have to send it to me, and we'll post it on the on the radio show. Yeah, <laughs> look at her. I, I think she she does look asleep. Well, you didn't tell me. She must be eighty years old, huh? She's not. No, she's a. Oh yeah, because her son. And she's still. 50. I love the red apron. Yeah. And the red and toque. Nine red glasses. And, and they're. I guess that's her color, huh? She, she's the truth. She really is. Oh, you have to send me that picture. Yeah, I will. Got to put it. We have to put it on the website. Okay. So so let's quickly take a diversion here because I want to get back to your your you know pasta flyer and all oh, of that yeah, yeah. so um, quick quickly for our uh, listeners out there what are your impressions of Expo in three seconds um, <laughs> obviously it's very um, well designed this, uh, visually it's it's incredibly impactful um, obviously a lot of time and energy uh, resources and certainly money went into producing um, what I'm sure is going to be a tremendous event. I mean, it just started. Um, it's not that busy yet, but I can see that it will be. And, and it's certainly built to be able to, to accommodate uh, seas of people. Um, Actually, the first day, they had close to a quarter of a million people, and it didn't look crowded. And so today, I think when you were there, there were over 200,000 people. You can barely people. see from one side to the other. Yeah, it's huge. Um, and the design uh, details are super, super nice. Like everybody, def, you know, all the representatives definitely really, um, you know, put a lot of work into their pavilions. Mm-hmm. Um, High points for you? I would say the uh, the the bottom level of the American Pavilion was by far my favorite. Really? The I found Arab. it to be the most inspirational with the seven vignettes. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was incredibly innovative the way that you did the, the whole video montage thing mm-hmm. with some, uh, you know, animation blended with, with, um, with video. Video, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the way it was, um, it was displayed on those the sheets, mm-hmm. uh, it, it blew me away. I thought it was. Oh, good. Amazing. All right. All right. And, and and the the hanging gardens as well. Oh, our vertical farm. Yeah. yeah. So Great. cool. Yeah, so cool. Uh, we also went to Iran, which was really interesting. I mean, how often do you get to go to Iran? Yeah. Um, what impressed you there? Uh, they had some like pistachios, and they had a lot of plants too. More than uh, I guess everybody had a lot of green. Um, it was interesting to see how people interpreted the the theme. Yeah. Um, certainly, some did it better than others. Which is feeding the planet. How to how to feed nine billion people in twenty fifty? Yeah. yeah. Um, I found uh, the American one to be uh, the most informative, but I might be, you know, a little bit partial. Yeah. Okay. So let's get back to Del, Del Posto. Just I know we can't delve in it a lot because I want to get to Pasta Flyer and your gluten-free uh, venture, which I find fascinating. Um, but when you took over the helm in 2005 of Del Posto, what was your what was what did you want to accomplish in that restaurant? I um, it was my um. My focus and my um, the 
the things that uh, the reason that I took the position initially because I had been at Lupa for five years. I was already a partner at very very well, um, and intended to be a four or at that time even a five hundred seat restaurant with an enormous staff. You know, I never considered myself to be that type of chef. I didn't think that I had a broad enough skill set to be able to manage on that on that level. Uh, I definitely didn't have the um, the the repertoire of dishes or of um, experience to pull off a, a restaurant that was um, is elaborately or chore- like uh, curated. Um, so it started pretty uh, bumpy in the beginning. Um, a lot of us, you know, we, we underestimated a lot of challenges. Um, we also um, were trying to do something that there wasn't really any precedent for. So we didn't really have anyone to look toward for inspiration. Um, there are no restaurants like that in Italy. Um, there, are no, there were at that time no restaurants like that in, in the U.S. either. Um, and uh, I knew that if I was going to work in a kitchen all day every day I might as well be in a nice kitchen because at the time Lupa was a typical New York kitchen of that day of its day and um, you know I was like how many people want could possibly want to come for my food on a given day like this going to be an easier way not easier but just a more civilized way to live as a professional chef um it's not you know untrue and after many years uh joe's initial vision really really did work um it just took patience and it took a lot of um you know perseverance um the idea was that you know, we had this massive place. It also, you know, initially it was supposed to be a more um, casual thing. But then with the trajectory of Joe's and Mario's career, it just sort of became a more and more ambitious project. And then the more it went over budget, the more it had to be ambitious to sort of justify the expenditure and so on and so forth. Um, so the idea was that, you know, we would garner, um, you know, positive critical press which would then um, feed the private dining uh, business, which would in turn subsidize the a la carte to a certain degree. So it would be this sort of like symbiotic thing, um, which, which works amazingly. It just it took a long time. Yeah. How hard is it to work with two very strong personalities? Um, they... They work really well together. Um, they are sort of of the uh, belief that um, I think ultimately they both want the same thing, so it doesn't um, really uh, allow for much conflict. Um, and I've been working with them now for almost 20 years, so I feel like I'm able to create sort of in their image to a certain degree um, also my image is like sort of intimately woven into theirs so it's sort of the same thing at this point um, I definitely feel like I spend I, I make sure that when I'm making decisions that I'm t- 
taking into consideration the way that they would expect things to be. Um, so it's not really that much. I guess after 20 years. Yeah, they also have, like, so much stuff going on. Like, I mean, I'm just one of their restaurants, you know. <laughs> well, you're not just one of their restaurants, yeah. But the, but the four stars from the New York Times certainly doesn't make you just one of their restaurants. Okay, let's get on to Pasta Flyer. This is, this is gluten-free pasta. You were up at Harvard, um, the public school. What is it? Um, uh, this, open to the public, the science and cooking uh, public lecture series for the Pasta uh, Flyer. Let, tell me about it. How did it start? So, yeah, Pasta Flyer is kind of the uh, a more modern extension of uh, sort of my answer to this void that I have um, from from having left Lupa all those years ago. So, as much as I love uh, Del Posto, um, it's a it's a dream to be able to. Um, to work really more as a curator than as as a cook. I don't do a lot of cooking. I do more managing and more like overseeing a vision and making sure that things are you know cohesive and and um, and and working like uh, you know more in the future rather than the the day to day operational stuff. Um, protecting the vision and, and and trying to evolve it. Um, but you know it's. It's an expensive fine dining restaurant, and it doesn't allow for, you know, everybody to to have access. And, you know, it's a little bit elitist, um, which is fine, but, you know, I don't consider myself to be an elitist person, and I need, like, a part of me that's able to um, embrace more of a, you know, populist culture. So, so, I mean, gluten-free is a um, is, is very specific, let's yeah. say. So this isn't like making popular food. No. Uh, so no, why, I, what, what brought you to gluten-free? Well, that really came out of, um, you know, a lot of the creative energies uh, at Del Posto for the last five years or so have been focused around managing and mitigating um, allergens, uh, dietary intolerances, um, and then it, it, it evolved further into dietary preference. Uh, we feel that in 2015, fine dining should be, you know, sort of um, revisiting more traditional hospitality and giving people what they want. Um, a lot of restaurants, uh, especially smaller restaurants like, you know, food bars and things like this, where they're like cooking this really extended menu and everybody gets the same thing and there's no exceptions and there's no menu. Um, we are sort of the antithesis of that, trying to re-embrace um, cooking for people, cooking them what they want rather than what I want. And, uh, you know, also being a larger restaurant, having to uh, appeal to a broader demographic of people. Um, it's not uncommon for us to do a table of, say, 12. So if there's 12 people at one table, it's more likely that there will be people that have aversions to certain types of ingredients. So we started having to create food to, uh, you know, navigate around that. So gluten-free being sort of the low-hanging fruit, <clears throat> excuse me, of allergens, uh, we started making pasta that was gluten-free 
and then we had a gluten-free version of every one of the pastas and then um, you know the, the more we practiced the better they got um, some certainly performing better than others um, but um, my personal favorite is dry pasta semolina and uh, I thought that it would be really interesting to be able to try to make a pasta that was gluten-free but that um, you know was able to embrace all of the uh, all of the satisfaction that you get from chewy semolina pasta and I feel like we have so um, at the same time we were trying to you know uh, create a concept that was sort of like a fast, fresh, casual thing. Um, I figured out a way to cook this pasta in, uh, in 15 seconds. So I can make you perfect al dente gluten-free pasta in 15 seconds. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And I, 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 I've not tasted it, but I'm sure. It, it, it's pretty damn good. It, <laughs> And for you, I think everyone can tell how humble you are. If you say it's pretty damn good, I mean, I'm sure it's... I, I mean, I like to eat it. Um, and like I said, like, you know, that that's really enough for me. Like, I feel like if I can make it good enough that that I'm satisfied, then... So, so tell me about Pasta Flyer Truck. So my girlfriend, Nastasia Lopez, who you, who you know, she worked with you at the... Uh, at the school. At the school um, with Dave Arnold in the in the... In the creative department. What was the department? Oh, called? Department of Culinary Tech. We were always ahead of the curve. You were ahead of the curve. You know, Alice Waters is a dean of sustainability in the 90s when people couldn't spell it, <laughs> you know? And then Dave, you know, we were the first school. Well, yeah. you know, it's always... And, and now it's just part of our and culture. Desiree and Alma? I mean, Tra- Yeah, I know. I know, I know. We're good. We're, we got Alma's some other insane. stuff on there. Yeah. 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 And now the West Coast. We have the West Coast, but mm-hmm. we're also talking with... Um, Jose Andres about doing something in Spain, so it's oh, kind of exciting. Cool. Yeah, you're going to like that cool. one too. I will. Yeah, I will. But, so go on. Let's, so tell me about so the pasta flyer. I used to work on this uh, concept as a hobby during our time off, and it continued to evolve. And then we were like, we really want to do something with this. How do we make this happen? We don't really have any money of our own. We are both gainfully employed and not in a position to leave our current jobs. So uh, Nastasia had experience with uh, crowdfunding. She had already done two, one for the Searsall and one for MOFAD. So we did a Kickstarter campaign, a flyer, to do a Northeastern Collegiate Corridor tour because we were hoping to sort of... um, you know, we wanted our target demographic to be millennials. And, you know, growing up in, in and around Harvard Square, I was always really uh, partial to, you know, those collegiate communities. Not necessarily the, the students, but the communities that support the universities. Mm-hmm. Also knowing from experience that, you know, those schools also often tend to be some of the largest uh, real estate holders in, the, in those communities. Mm-hmm. So if you could get a relationship with the school and have them be, you know, get a favorable leasing deal with them and then also be supporting their communities, you know, they, you'll notice in, in the Northeast, some of these schools, their, their, their campus is becoming so large that they don't have enough resources on it or in it to really, like, support 
Yeah, all, 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 all the stuff, yeah. yeah. All the faculty, all the, mm-hmm. you know, um, the groundskeepers and all the other administrators and people that it takes to run these huge companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was our strategy. So we started in Harvard um, because of the... Uh, because of um, uh, Michael yeah, Brenner. Fa- oh, I was going to say fond memories of the, skateboarding yeah. and the and the and the food and science lecture series. Um, I was invited to speak about elasticity, which is something that I had been researching pretty extensively for the past couple of years. Um, elasticity and plasticity, and how they meet to create that al dente texture, mm-hmm. which is um, something that I was really really obsessed with because. Gluten-free pasta, um, by definition, cannot have that texture. So, um, so the, obviously, that was an incredible um, opportunity and privilege. Um, from there, we went to Johnson. Is that is that available on the internet? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. if they, you go to YouTube and you just put in Mark Ladner, Harvard. Uh, yeah, yeah, series. absolutely, absolutely. And you'll find yes. it, and so we can find out what yeah. you think about elasticity in pasta. Yes. Right. I'm, I'm, I've been invited to, to do it again this coming year as well, so uh-huh. I'll be back there at the end of September. Oh, great. Yeah, to do it again, so, yeah. So what's your next challenge that's fascinating you at the moment? So now so now we did this tour. We, um, we fulfilled all of our obligation to Kickstarter. And we're trying to build, uh, you know, a business model that we can um, try to seduce some investors to start um, a company called Pasta Flyer that that um, and try to propagate the uh, northeastern collegiate quarter with these kiosks that produce, uh, you know, dry pasta. Excuse me and. 15 seconds, and then all the other delicious uh, and healthful, nourishing Italian accompaniments that go along with the meal. Is, is there a short answer to telling me how you do it in 15 seconds? It's, uh, it's proprietal. I, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> We're moving into when you say... That's right. No, it doesn't involve any sort of like uh, patent protection or anything like that, so... Well, maybe you should. You keep it a secret. Well, and that's what you were talking about earlier. That a chef today has to know so much more than just knife skills yeah. and and kitchen yeah. protocols yeah. and 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 technique. And there's so much demand on you know, from PR to yeah. uh, entrepreneur yeah. skills. Well, as you can hear in the background, uh, the, the guests are starting to come in, and din- dinner is coming in. I can't thank you enough for taking time out. I mean, literally, they, everyone's coming in, and uh, you've got to get back to our James Beard Award winner, our first chef. It's, it's, we're so proud to have you here. And honorary doctor, <laughs> Dr. Mark Ladner. Thanks for coming. Thank okay, you. and thank you, everyone. See you next time. Awesome. Great. Thanks for your that time. Was, no, thank you. That was listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. 
Thanks for listening. 